2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 14 this morning. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And notice this phrase, Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Verse number one of chapter three, he then writes this, do we again or begin to again commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you for you are our letter or epistle written in our hearts known and read by all men clearly you are an epistle or a letter of christ ministered by us written not with ink but by the spirit of the living god not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let me just say before I pray, this is, and much of 2 Corinthians is, I'm, I love this stuff, and I love teaching through this book. First time I've ever taught through it in almost 40 years, but, and it's a hard book, and I think that's one of the reasons it's the first time I taught all the way through it, because if you just read it, like, oh, I'm not sure what to do with that, but there is powerful truth here, and uh, we're gonna learn, and we're gonna apply, and how many wanna be changed, transformed by the word of God? Lord, that is our desire today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do just that. Teach our minds, but then transform those minds. We don't just want knowledge. We're going to get some. But we want that knowledge then to be transformative knowledge. We want not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So help me to speak with clarity today, with simplicity. Help me to speak, Lord, in a way that um, is easy to lay hold of. And I pray, God, for your anointing, not because I deserve it, I certainly don't, not because I've earned it, because I haven't, but because I need it. And I want your word to be rightly divided today to change, challenge, and transform our lives today by your Holy Spirit. That's our prayer. Pray, Lord, that in my weakness, your strength would be perfect. Pray, God, that you would speak through me and that every word I speak would be from you. Captivate our attention toward your word in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this text is um, a little bit shorter than the one that we last looked at a couple of weeks ago. Last week was Father's Day. But the implications of this text are far-reaching. Let me just kind of give you a very quick introduction, and we're going to jump into kind of four blocks of truth that I want to share with you this morning but first of all, this text brings to an end what is kind of like Paul's travelogue. Uh, he's been describing where he's been going up till now. 
and he will not resume that travel log until chapter 7 and verse 5. So we have this kind of, um, the, the, the chapter uh, 2 and verse 13 and chapter 7 and verse 5 are like the bookends uh, where there's this teaching material, but on the either side of those is kind of this travel log. In chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul said, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So that's where that travel log um, kind of ended for the first time. He went to Macedonia. And then when we get to chapter 7 and verse 5, he will say, Indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. So we're now dealing with that in-between material. Um, he left for Macedonia. He'll leave Macedonia in chapter 7. But now we are in between those two bookends. This is kind of a lengthy section, and it's about Paul. Again, I'll remind you, Paul is defending himself. People are saying, Paul, you're not really an apostle. Your ministry is too weak. You're not a good communicator. You haven't taken money like most apostles do. You've been dishonest about your travel plans. And so the question was, was Paul authentically an apostle? And so he is going to defend that beginning today all the way through chapter 7 and verse 4. Certainly one of the themes that emerges is the theme of sufficiency. Where is our sufficiency? It's prevalent in this section that I just read to you. It's mentioned four times in these verses. The noun for sufficient appears once, and it is the noun hikonates, and it means sufficiency. The adjective shows up three times, and it is hikonas, and uh, it, it also it, it is the word sufficient. So it's an adjective, sufficiency is a noun, and these two appear total four times just in the verses we read. So sufficiency, keep that in mind, is one of the main themes here. Paul is further going to defend his ministry that is being ridiculed, it's being undermined by false accusations, by people that hate him, that are, are leveling harsh criticism at him. And Paul is going to point out, hey, I am not sufficient in myself. My sufficiency is alone in Jesus Christ. His confidence, despite being slammed with these accusations, his confidence is summed up in chapter 3 and verse 4 with these words, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. Confident, not because I'm great, Paul says, but I trust what Christ is doing in my life. Let me read you some words of St. Augustine. He said, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and we try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all of our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So Paul is saying, I'm not defending myself with my rhetorical skills or my wisdom. I am defending myself because I trust wholly in Christ who has made me 
sufficient. Now, I'm going to ask you uh, over the next 20 or 25 or 75 minutes to um, think with me, uh, to think with me, all right? This is not just a cheesy little book report. We're going to think together. How many are okay using your mind in church? Everybody good with that? So I want you to think with me. I'm going to kind of share with you four main blocks of truth. I'll tie them together toward the end but let's just let them kind of settle in us a piece at a time. Number one, I I want you to see that there is in this text, and and this is gonna be important going forward, there is an underlying contrast that Paul makes about his own ministry in comparison to the ministry of Moses, which would have been very big to the Jews. Moses was their guy, all right? Moses was the guy who gave the law. He brought them across the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness. So Moses was their guy, and Paul is having to defend himself. So Paul is gonna make some contrast here between himself and the ministry of Moses, which will be very important next week and even for a couple of weeks after that. Number one, Like Moses, Paul is the one that speaks on behalf of God and mediates the covenant and the promises of God. I won't belabor this long, but we know that Moses went to the top of the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, he came down, and he was the one that spoke to Israel, and he mediated the covenant, and he mediated the promises of God to them. He reads in Deuteronomy, he tells them, just before he dies, if you are obedient, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, you will be cursed. Moses was the guy that mediated the covenant and the promises of God. Paul is very much like that. This is a verse that we read earlier, chapter one. God is faithful. Our word to you, our word, Paul said, our preaching was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So Paul said, I'm mediating the promises of God to you. I'm mediating the covenant to you. So that's contrast number one. Secondly, like Moses, Paul's authority was being questioned by rebels. He'd already addressed the grief, and we've been talking about it almost every week. Paul is being accused of not being a real apostle, of being kind of cocky and arrogant. It's the very same thing Moses had happen to him. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah and his family led a rebellion against Moses, saying that Moses was not some kind of special, unique leader, and they wondered why he made himself the prince among all of them, and they leveled accusations at Moses, and God judged Korah and his sons because of that rebellion. So that's the second contrast. Like Moses, his authority was being questioned. Thirdly, the covenants that they mediate are also contrasted as well. Remember what I just read to you? One covenant was written with ink on tablets of stone, but Paul said the covenant that I mediated is written by the Spirit on the hearts of men. So they're both mediating a covenant, but they are very different. Number four, this is the hardest part of the whole message. If you get this, we'll all do a deep sigh of relief together, and then we'll move on happily after that. This is a little bit, you're gonna have to think with me, but number four, this is a contrast between Moses and Paul. How many promise not to get lost in the next three minutes, all right? Their supernatural experience in hearing from God 
seem also to be in view. Look at this text. I read it to you. Verse 14. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, there are some translations that say he leads us in triumphal procession. That Greek word is threabiumen. How many want to say that 27 times in a message? Threabiumen. And it is only used one other place, and it's in Colossians 2, when Christ spoils principalities. He leads this procession. He um, spoils the work of the enemy. This procession This Greek word that I'm not going to even try to say again pictures the Roman conqueror who was the general riding into the city in a procession. The procession was led by senators. Then it would have people that were carrying spoils that they had just taken from an enemy. Then the priest would come in with their bulls for the sacrifices and then following them were captives. And then finally the general as he celebrated And as he celebrated and he came in in this triumphal procession, he would then be escorted and he would ascend the throne in front of all of the people so that they could see him. He would ride in on a two-wheel chariot. You've seen that in some of the old movies, a two-wheel chariot that had four horses in front of it, harnessed side by side, two by two. And the general in the chariot would then ascend to the throne. This picture is also seen in the Old Testament. The word chariot is Merkaba. It shows up 40 to- 44 times in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel. And this ascending in this chariot to the throne became actually a picture of and something used by Jewish mystics. They talked about the Merkaba where they would ascend into this place in the spirit and they would receive revelation. They would contemplate there. This word picture is seen in the vision of Ezekiel chapter 1, the appearance of what looks like a chariot. And it was there that Ezekiel received his vision from God. He ascended into the presence of God and God descended to him. Think about this for just a moment. Moses, what did Moses do? He ascended into the mountain where God spoke to him. God revealed the covenant to him. God said nobody else can even get close. Moses ascended into the mountain and there God gave him incredible revelation. So now Paul is likening himself to Moses who went into the throne room of God, if you will, on the top of Mount Sinai in the cloud. Nobody else could get close and God spoke to him face to face. Paul also had two similar experiences. Remember Acts chapter 9, we all know this story. As I journeyed, I came near Damascus and there was a light that shone around me from heaven and, and Paul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, rise and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. This was Paul's conversion experience. It was supernatural. It was mystical. God struck him down. And that's not the only experience Paul had. Remember these words that we'll get to many weeks later. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or whether out of the body I don't know, God knows such a one 
was caught up into the third heaven. Let me just pause for just a moment. So Paul, most people believe Paul's talking about himself here. Paul is saying, just like Moses was led up the mountain in triumphal procession, and he heard from God, I have been led, and I too have this revelation that I have been mediating to you. A fifth contrast, you can take that sigh now, that was the hardest part of the whole message, and I tell every one of you got 100% of it, I understand. Number five, Paul said that both he and Moses had a sense of inadequacy. Remember what Moses said when he got called? I can't do this. I can't even talk. I stutter when I speak. I'm inadequate. And Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? So there is this contrast. This is all you need to really get. This is the takeaway from point number one. This contrast with Moses helps us understand the present text, but will help us even more in the following week. So the first thing is, there's this very clear contrast between Moses and Paul. Paul is defending himself, and he's saying, I'm a lot like your man Moses. I've had the same experiences. I felt inadequate. I've been carried into a, a revelation like Moses had. People are, are fighting against me, so there's contrast is established. Secondly, just lay that piece over to the side. There is, secondly, a straightforward argument that Paul is making in this passage. If we were just to read it and not try to apply it, which is okay to do, at least initially, there is a very straightforward message. Understood correctly only when we see it through the lens of Paul defending his own ministry. Number one, and let me just give you this straightforward message. Number one, despite the criticism, challenges to his authenticity and false witnesses. Paul said, my ministry is validated by what Christ has done and is doing in me. Now, Paul characteristically says we, and when he says we, he's talking about his team, Silvanus and Timothy. He's talking about his ministry. And notice, even though he's being accused, even though he is being lambasted, Paul says, but thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. Even though I'm being criticized, even though you are saying I'm not really apostle, Paul says, God keeps making himself known to me. As Paul continued to submit to Christ's lordship, Christ kept coming to him. Paul said, look, Paul said, my ministry is valid because of this. Because even though you say it's not valid, he keeps leading me in triumphal procession. God is still speaking to me and through me. Secondly, Paul said, his message brought forth a vertical and a horizontal response. He says this, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other we are the aroma of life leading to life. Paul said, God is pleased with me. We are well-pleasing to God because our lives, watch this, and so should your lives, so should my life, our lives have both a vertical and a horizontal um, aspect to them. Vertically, God was pleased because Paul kept proclaiming the word. I am a fragrance of God through Christ. God is pleased with my life. But secondly, horizontally, that proclamation produced two responses. To those who were believers, it brought hope and life. Paul said, because I am 
proclaiming the word of God. To those who are believers, it gives them hope. They are encouraged. But to those who are not believers, who reject the gospel, the same message brought an aroma of death. It confirmed to the lost that they were lost. Everybody look at me for just a moment. When you are really living the way God expects you and calls you to live and calls and expects us to live, our lives will be comforting to believers, but our lives will be convicting to the unbeliever. Your life ought to send out an aroma that makes believers feel like I, I'm around a Christian. Haven't you all been around people that you just know they're Christians? It's that their lives are sending out an aroma, but to the unbeliever, they want to get away as quickly as they can because there is something in your life, not your words, you're not telling them they're awful, but there's something in your life that makes them recognize they're not where they need to be with Jesus. It's what Paul said his life did. Thirdly, Paul knew the responsibility that came with this message was beyond his competence. Paul said, my goodness, who is sufficient for this? Who, who, Paul's not cocky. He said, who's sufficient for, who is sufficient for hearing from God? Who is sufficient for communicating what God has said? Who is sufficient for having a life that encourages some and makes others feel like, oh my goodness, if I'm not right with God, I'm going to miss eternity. Paul said, who is sufficient? Certainly, Paul is saying, it's not me. And number four, though others opposed Paul, and used the word for their own benefit, Paul knew the sober reality that surrounded his call. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not as many peddling the word of God, but we're doing it out of sincerity, but as from God. Listen, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Did you, you get this? This one, this one almost haunts me as one who preaches the word every week. Paul said, I'm not just preaching to people. I'm preaching in the sight of God. He knows what I'm saying. He knows how I'm leading people. He knows if I'm doing it wrong or if I'm doing it out of my own peddling of the word to get what I want, then I will be judged for that. That's what Paul is saying. Others are peddling the word of God, but Paul knew the sober reality that surrounded his call. We preach, speak in the sight of God. And number five, he talks about letters of recommendation. He says this, do we again commend ourselves or do we need to some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink but by the Spirit of living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. Let me just give you what that means real quickly. Travelers, if, if you were an evangelist and you were traveling from one community to another community, you couldn't send your resume by email. You couldn't have a letter of reference sent ahead, so you carried letters of recommendation. You would carry them with you, and you would knock on a synagogue door or a church door and say, I'd like to speak to your congregation. They say, do you have any letters of recommendation? Do you have any letters of commendation and Paul said you're asking me about those do I need to really write any he said your lives your lives have been changed by my ministry your your lives are letters Paul was simply asking rhetorical question he was not writing his own recommendation their lives the Corinthian lives prove the authenticity of his ministry 
Paul said, subjectively, they are written on my heart, but objectively, they're read by everybody. I carry those as your lives, as a letter of commendation. I carry that in my heart, but everybody sees it. Your changed life, Paul said, is indeed a letter of recommendation for my ministry. He's defending his ministry. Here again, he contrasts the old and the new covenant. The medium of the old covenant was ink. The medium of the new covenant is the spirit. The material of the old covenant was tablets of stone. And the material of the new covenant is our hearts of flesh. And finally, number five, Paul's confidence was in Christ completely. We have such trust through Christ or God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Paul again is setting himself up as different. He's not arrogant, he's not self-confident. He knows that God has used him, but God is his source of sufficiency. Again, Augustine said, all these good things and all of our sincerity are rightly found only and completely in him. Again, the old covenant, the old and new. The old letter kills, the new gives life. So if we're just reading it for, to understand what Paul's doing, Paul's just defending himself. Now, let, let me take you to a third block of truth here. There are some powerful lessons for those engaged in gospel ministry. So I'm kind of preaching to myself, anybody else. We all, we all have some ministry, but there is, if I were teaching a conference of young pastors, here is probably where I would focus in on five lessons. Number one, while the details are all different of the calls, the origin is not. Paul had a dramatic call on the road to Damascus. He was called to be an apostle. I remember my call, it was in Conaway Hall when I was 16 years of age. But everyone that has a call, and by the way, one of the things that we have begun praying about as a staff, so parents get ready, because we're praying for God to get your kids, okay? I just want you to understand that. We're beginning to pray that God will touch the lives of young people and call them into ministry, to call them to preach the gospel, to call them to go overseas and preach the gospel. There is no better vocation that your young people could, could take up than that of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen if you believe that. But while the calls, the details of the calls are different, if I were talking to pastors, I'd say, your call may not look like somebody else's, may not look like Paul's, but the origin is the same. It's the Lord that calls. How many believe it's the Lord that calls? Secondly, the word was then and is now to be proclaimed in an uncompromising manner. Paul said, we're not peddling the word of God. We are preaching out of sincerity. My dad, as you know, is not doing well, and uh, we're concerned about him, but he knows Jesus, and and. But one of the things my dad always taught me, I remember, and I don't have, I shouldn't even tell stories, I don't have time, but I'm gonna tell it anyway, because I'll make time. But um, what, one of the things my, I remember telling my dad, I was sitting on the steps leading down to his bedroom, and I said, Dad, we had just had Teen Challenge here one week, and they all had stories about coming out of drug addiction, and then we had an evangelist that told a lot of funny stories, and I said, Dad, I, I've never been addicted to drugs. I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life, and I don't have a lot of funny stories to tell, and Dad said, if you get 30 minutes to preach, Kevin, make sure it is full of the Word of God because you are responsible for that time before the Lord, and I love that advice. 
The word was then, it is now to be proclaimed in uncompromising manner. Say amen if you believe that. Number three, in our own strength, no one is sufficient for the task of gospel presentation and ministry. And if we ever think so, we are on dangerous ground. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me, Paul said. If we start thinking we can do this with our eyes closed and without prayer and without anointing, we have lost our way. Number four, there must always be an awareness of divine accountability. Paul said, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Every preacher preaching today around America is not just preaching to a congregation, no matter if they have two or 20,000, they are preaching in the sight of God, who is the one that will determine whether or not he says, well done, good and faithful servants. And number five, when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, it will be good news to some and bad news to others. So that's what I would say to ministers. You guys are getting a lot today. And number four, all right? I'll give you the fourth block of truth. There's a powerful portrait of Christ that's evident in this text. Number one, Christ is always faithful despite our setbacks and failures. Somebody say amen if you believe that. He's always faithful. This text starts out, Paul said, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. Taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Though Paul was distressed in spirit because of his concern for Titus, he also knew that God had led him into triumph and victory. Some of you this morning, look at me, may be concerned and in distress for situations in your life. But Christ is always faithful. Despite those setbacks, despite the fact that there are some things you don't understand or some questions you have that don't have answers or a diagnosis that you don't understand or a situation in your home that doesn't make sense, despite that, Paul said, I had no rest in my spirit. There were setbacks. But Christ always leads me in triumphal procession. The great paradox, said Chuck Colson, of my life, is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases I won before the Supreme Court. That's not what God is using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and I went to prison. That was my great defeat the only thing in my life I did not succeed in. If you don't know the story of Chuck Colson, he lied, he failed, he ended up in prison over the Watergate situation, but he was transformed by the power of the gospel, and his ministry has affected literally tens of thousands of people, but he said God took my failure. The only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in, God took it, and God, how many are glad God can use our failures? Secondly, Christ's triumph through weakness is a powerful theme in Paul's letter. Would you go ahead and stand with me? I'm almost done. Go ahead and stand with me, and uh, that makes you feel better. It makes you feel like I'm not going to go forever, so go ahead and stand. Um, the second point, second lesson is Christ's triumph through weakness is a theme of Paul's letter. The triumphal procession pictures God leading. He is the general 
And I didn't really unpack this completely then because I wanted to save it for now, but we are actually, we're actually the defeated slaves in that picture being led in procession. He conquered us. How many are glad Jesus conquered you? You're now a bond slave to Jesus Christ. And he leads us through his death to our victory. Christ's death led to victory in the resurrection. The strength of, the strength through weakness is a theme of 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna read really fast. We'll get to these texts in weeks to come, but can I just give you a sampling? We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the body of the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is working in us, but life in you. That's one text about the theme of strength through weakness. What about this one? Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day for our light and momentary affliction, which is only for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen because the things which are seen, they are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Outward man is perishing. How many can confess your outward man is perishing, but your inward man is being renewed day by day? Strength through weakness. And we'll get to this text. I won't read it all. You know it. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul will say three times, Lord, deliver me from this thorn in my flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, will I boast in my infirmities so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in my infirmities and my reproaches in my needs, in my persecutions, in my destruction, for when I am weak, then I am strong. N.T. Wright said, we live in a world full of people struggling, listen, this is good, struggling to be, or at least to appear strong in order not to be weak. And yet we follow a gospel that says that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that's the only gospel that brings healing. And number three, Christ's sufficiency belongs to those who will embrace their own weakness. Paul said, we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient. We don't like weakness, but if we don't embrace it, we cannot be strong. It's countercultural but it is the key to a life of fruitfulness. J.I. Packer said this, and I'm done. We grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness, offloading our fantasies of omnicompetence. We start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient, willing, and our relationship to God. We give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. We begin teaching ourselves unemotionally and matter-of-factly to recognize that we are not likely ever to appear or actually to be much a success by the world standard. We bow to events that rub our noses in the reality of our weakness. And we look to God for strength 
quietly to come. It is impossible at the same time to give the impression both that I am a great Christian and that Jesus Christ is a great master. So the Christian will practice curling up small as it were so that in and through him or her, the Savior may show himself great. That is what I mean by growing downward. Father, teach us to grow downward. Teach us to say our sufficiency is of you. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us are. But in our weakness, your strength is perfect. No matter what situation I am facing right now, in my weakness, your strength is perfect. Teach me to depend upon you. Teach me to surrender to you. Teach me, God, to lay myself before you and say, Lord, I cannot do this in my own strength. But I will gladly rejoice in my weaknesses so that your strength can be made perfect. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to find our sufficiency in you, I pray. With your heads bowed for just a moment this morning, I want to ask a simple question. Is there anybody in this room today that would say, Pastor Kevin, my heart is not right with Jesus. I am not serving God. I'm not a Christian. My heart is not right. I'm not ready to go to heaven. If Jesus were to come, I'm not ready. But I want to be ready. I want to give my life to him today. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone in this room that would raise a hand and say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today? Anyone in this place? Anyone in this room? this prayer with me if you would everyone in this room pray this out loud Jesus I love you I need you today I give you my life forgive me of my sin come and live inside of me with my mouth I confess you as Lord and in my heart I believe God raised you from the dead with your help by your spirit, I will serve you the rest of my days. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. In just a moment when we close, if you raised your hand, you didn't raise your hand, but you prayed that and you made Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you just to meet Pastor Jeff up here to my right. We will dismiss. You just step up here wants to pray with you and give you a little booklet that will help you in your walk with the Lord. How many would say this morning with me, I know that I'm not sufficient for what God wants me to do, but I know that my sufficiency is in Christ. And today I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to lean into you more than ever before and find my sufficiency in you. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's where I'm at? Can we sing this chorus and just worship him as we close?